Dear Lord, we thank you for this day that we get to come again and praise you for you are worthy of all blessing and honor and glory. Pray that this morning you open our eyes to your word. Let it not be my words, but let uh, your wisdom come through me. In Jesus' name, amen. Good morning, everybody. We are in Mark chapter 11, and today we're going to be discussing paradoxes. So, good true paradox is a comparison that on first appearance seems like a contradiction, but on further investigation, it is true. All right, um, I teach paradoxes in some of my classes. Uh, so, if you want to learn a little bit about Zeno's paradox, uh, comes from my calc class. Feel free to ask me after class or come to my office hours or wait, no, wrong day. Uh, service, ask me after service, right? And I can talk to you about Zeno's paradox. Um, but we've actually had a paradox right in front of us since we started the book of Mark in our slide, right? This paradox of Christ who has all of the power. He is God incarnate, fully divine, Fully God, fully man, he has also come to serve. As we saw in our memory verse, uh, he did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for all of us. Right? We have this strange contradiction, and yet they are both true. They are both embodied in Christ. And so today in his triumphal entry, we're going to take a look at this seeming contradiction of Jesus' humility and his divinity, and upon further investigation, find that both are true. So, we begin in verse 1. Now, when they drew near to Jerusalem, to Bethphage and Bethany, at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples and said to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately you will... Uh, as you enter it, you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it. If anyone says to you, why are you doing this? Say, the Lord has need of it and will send it back here immediately. And they went away and found a colt tied at a door outside in the street. And they untied it. And some of those standing there said to them, what are you doing untying the colt? And they told them what Jesus had said. And they let them go. And they brought the colt to Jesus and the, threw their cloaks on it, and he sat on it. So I'm going to point out the obvious here. Jesus didn't have his own donkey, right? He had to go borrow one, right? This is kind of the humble circumstances that we see Christ coming in. He has nothing, right? Um, he says in Luke 9:58, foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests. But the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Right? He comes in very humble circumstances. Right? And you know, goes on to mention making sure right, we will return the cult. Right? I am just borrowing it. I'm not taking the cult. It's going to come back to you. Um, and so they allow him to, to bring this cult. So he comes riding in on a donkey. And... Uh, the donkey, right, this beast of burden, very common animal, um, uh, he chooses to come riding in on that as opposed to, say, a war horse, right, come riding in on this big grand horse with an army behind him, or 
you know, he is God of all time and space. He could have spoken into existence a tank, right? And come rolling into Jerusalem on a tank if he wanted. But thankfully he doesn't, right? He comes to us on a donkey. And uh, this symbolizes him bringing, right, peace, not war. And we see that further, right, when we see where he's headed. Skipping ahead to verse 11, and he entered Jerusalem and went into the temple. And when he looked around at everything, as it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. So he's on his way into the temple, which means he's going to be riding through the Golden Gate, which is also known as the Mercy Gate. He's come to bring us mercy on his way to the temple where all the sacrifices are. He is on his way to sacrifice himself. Now again, he could have chosen another gate, right? Jerusalem has many gates. There's a wall all the way around it. It's the whole right, uh, topic of uh, Nehemiah rebuilds the, the gate, right? the wall with the gates. And one of them um, could have come through the Zion Gate, which is David's gate, say, hey, look, I am the son of David. I'm here to claim my throne. Right? But again, he doesn't. Or he could have come through the Damascus Gate, this is the, the most grand of all the gates. Nice, big, beautiful gate. This is where right, uh, kings would come riding into town on right, to kind of show off their uh, splendor and all of that. But again, that's not what Jesus has chosen. He has come to, to bring us salvation, to bring us his mercy. Right? If we think about how an earthly king would want to do this, They'd want to right, come riding in on that war horse and show off, look at this pretty horse that I have and all these shiny things and I've got my military behind me because I'm super powerful um, uh, and you know, just ignore the fact that I'm doing this because I have very low ego uh, or very big ego but, but very low, you know, I, I realize I'm just a man um, kind of thing. And uh, I want you to see my army, so you know that I am to be obeyed. Right? But that, again, is not how Christ does it. He is confident in right, his role to come and to bring us salvation. And again, the donkey is very fitting as a beast of burden because that is exactly the role that he is taking on. He has come to bear our burdens, to bear our sins, and as Isaiah 53 says it, let's go ahead and read that. So starting in verse 1 of Isaiah 53, Who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant, and like a root out of dry ground he had no form or majesty that we should look at him, and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his stripes we are healed. All like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He has come to bear our burdens, to bear our sins. 
right? Which reminds us exactly why he's there. He's there to bring us this mercy, to show us mercy, to bring us salvation, to take on that burden for us that we could not take on ourselves. So we contrast this humility with Christ's divinity and praise. So we see that on several occasions, Christ does accept worship. He is worthy to do so. Um, and uh, like if you think of when he calms the storm, right? The, the disciples worship him. and He accepts that worship, which we know only God is worthy of worship. So I'm just pulling a quick couple of verses from Revelation 22, 8 and 9. John is talking with an angel. I, John, am the one who heard and saw these things, and when I heard and saw them, I fell down to worship at the feet of the angel who showed them to me. But he said to me, You must not do that. I am a fellow servant with you and your brothers, the prophets, and with those who keep the words of this book. Worship God. Only God is worthy of worship. And we see a little bit of worship, right, of Jesus in this triumphal entry. We see here, Starting in verse 8, And many spread their cloaks on the road, and others spread leafy branches that they had cut from the fields. And those who went before and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord! Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David! Hosanna in the highest! Right? They have basically rolled out the red carpet treatment for him. Right? We see the red carpet get rolled out for big events, a big movie premiere, the Oscars or whatever, and all the, the famous people walk down it, and we take pictures of them and have you know some fun with that, I guess. Um, but Jesus here, not a red carpet, but our very clothes. They take off their cloaks, lay it on the colt. They take off their cloaks, lay it on the floor, right on the ground, for the donkey to walk over bring in the palm branches, all of that stuff. They're rolling out the red carpet treatment for him. Why is it just this time, though, that they're rolling out the red carpet treatment for him? What are they seeing that has excited them so much? Well, um, we get a picture of that a little bit in John 12. It's the same account here of the triumphal entry. John 12, 17 says, The crowd that had been with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead, continued to bear witness. The reason why the crowd went to meet him was that they heard he had done this sign. So we recall a little while back, right? Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead. And this was a pretty amazing thing. Like he's raised people from the dead before, but this time Lazarus was like really dead. Um, uh, so when someone dies, they don't immediately throw him into the tomb. Right, they make sure he's dead, right? And then uh, once they're sure he's dead, then they wrap him in the burial clothes, take him into the tomb. And Lazarus had been in the tomb for four days before Jesus showed up. Lazarus was super dead, and everyone was sure of it. Okay? And then Jesus shows up, has him roll out the tomb. They're worried about the smell, but then here comes Lazarus as Jesus calls him out. This is what has got them all so excited, Right? This is why they are convinced this guy's the Messiah, right? He's got control over life and death. He's clearly coming to overthrow the Roman Empire, which he's not, right? Spoiler. Um, so, 
uh, yeah, he's come, and they're super excited. That's why they're rolling out this red carpet treatment for him, because he raised a dude from the dead, and everyone has heard of this. Now, part of their praise is, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Where does that come from? They're actually proclaiming him to be the Messiah in this, reading from Psalm 118. So we're going to go to Psalm 118 and read some verses out of that to see where this uh, specific phrase comes from. I'm going to start in verse 14. The Lord is my strength and my song. He has become my salvation. Glad songs of salvation are in the tents of the righteous. The right hand of the Lord does valiantly. The right hand of the Lord exalts. The right hand of the Lord does valiantly. I shall not die, but I shall live and recount the deeds of the Lord. The Lord has disciplined me severely, but he has not given me over to death. Open to me the gates of righteousness, that I may enter through them, to give thanks to the Lord. This is the gate of the Lord, the righteous shall enter through it. I thank you that you have answered me, and have become my salvation. The Lord that the, builders re- the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. This is the day that the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. Save us, we pray, O Lord. O Lord, we pray, give us success. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We bless you from the house of the Lord. The Lord is God, and he has made his light to shine upon us. Bind the festal sacrifice with cords up to the horns of the altar. So, where was Hosanna in that? Right? It's hiding in here, because Hosanna is a, a unique kind of word. Hosanna is our English transliteration of a Greek word, which is a Greek transliteration of a Hebrew word that means, save us, O Lord. Right? That is in verse 25. So, Hosanna, they're proclaiming, right, save us, Lord. It means exactly that, or it can also be used as, the Lord is our salvation. Right? We are proclaiming, this is who is bringing us salvation. Um, and we also see, right, this is a uh, prophecy of the Messiah. We get later on in Mark where he quotes from Psalm 118. Again, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone, right? Christ is the one who's going to be rejected, but in so doing become the foundation which we build our lives around. He is our cornerstone that we take our guidance from and find our hope in. So, all of this points to, right, Jesus being this hailed Messiah. And uh, the Pharisees aren't too happy about it, right? In Luke 19, again in the triumphal entry account, um, in verse 39, we see, And some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. He answered them, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. They are recognizing that what the people are doing is proclaiming Jesus to be the coming Messiah, the Son of God. They're not too happy about it because that's not what they believe. That They want the power for themselves. They want the glory for themselves. Right? So... That is exactly what's happening here. Jesus is, again, accepting praise and worship, showing us that he is God. He is 
perfectly holy, divine, and yet he's coming on a donkey in humble circumstances, riding on the cloaks of the common people on his way to die. Now, this coming was prophesied several times, um, and we see many events in the Old Testament that foreshadow this very event. Um, and we're going to work our way back, taking a look at some of these uh, comparisons, and show exactly what's going on. Matthew quotes from Zechariah 9 uh, to specifically point out that Jesus' triumphal entry is a fulfillment of this prophecy. So from Zechariah 9, verse 9, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. And Matthew gets a little bit of um, flack for that because uh, the way he phrases it um, makes some people think that Matthew's trying to say Jesus was riding two donkeys at once, trying to claim that Matthew misunderstood this passage because Matthew mentions they bring the mother of the donkey along and they place Jesus on them. Right? So to, if anyone brings up this supposed contradiction, here is our answer. Right? Um, there are several explanations for this. One, makes sense to bring the mother along for a cult who's never been ridden on before. Um, donkey's going to be a little nervous about this, so having mama there, right? everything's going to feel a lot better. And just ask Jovi, right? When mama's there, everything's better. Okay. Um, and then uh, another thing, too, the word order in Matthew is switched a little bit from the other uh, gospel accounts, uh, suggesting that when he says they place Jesus on them, um, it could very well be that they're placing Jesus on the cloaks. That's the them that they're referring to, not the two donkeys. Um, but another good example, right? Rather than this picture of Jesus riding in on two donkeys, that on its very face is kind of absurd, right? You got Jesus, it's the mom in a colt, so he's got one leg up on one donkey and one on the other, kind of riding into town like a circus performer. And that's not what's happening, right? If I were to say to Kendra, hey, I went to the shop and picked up the, our cars and brought them home. Right? She doesn't have this picture of me with my feet in one vehicle. Like, right? I'm driving on the gas pedal and steering with this foot. I'll reach in with the stick and push the gas pedal on the other side and driving down the road with these two cars. No, she's going to think, oh yeah, you just towed the other one. Got to drive in one, the other's in tow. I drove them home. That makes, yeah, obviously. Right? And... Jesus is riding the colt of a donkey. He's got another in tow. Not that complicated. Um, <laughs> so, all right, that's to address that uh, concern of sums. So we see, right, Jesus is riding in on this donkey. And this event is also kind of foreshadowed here in Genesis 49 when Jacob is blessing his children, uh, specifically his blessing to his son Judah, who through his Judah's line eventually comes David and Jesus. So in Genesis 49, starting in verse 8, Judah, your brothers shall praise you. Your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's son shall bow down before you. Judah is a lion's cub 
from the prey, my son, you have gone up. He stooped down, he crouched as a lion, and as a lioness who dares rouse him. The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until the tribute comes to him. And to him shall be the obedience of the peoples, binding his foal to the vine, and his donkey's colt to the choice vine. He has washed his garments in wine, and his vesture in the blood of grapes. His eyes are darker than wine, and his teeth whiter than milk. So again, we get this picture of the donkey coming and being washed in the right, blood of grapes. So these are pictures of what Christ is doing here, riding into town on his donkey and washing us all clean with his blood. Right? And we get it a little more clearly in the events of Genesis 22, going back even earlier when Abraham is asked to sacrifice his son, Isaac. So we see in Genesis 22, starting in verse 1, after these things, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and he said, here am I. He said, take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah. So a little side note, Moriah, guess what's there? That's where the temple was built, Mount Moriah. Right, that's where Jesus is on his way. So this initial sacrifice that happens here happens again in the temple as a reminder to the people of right, what is to come. And offer, so talking again about Isaac, offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. So Abraham rose early in the morning, saddled his donkey, and took two of his young men with him and his son Isaac, and he cut the wood for the burnt offering, and arose and went to the place of which God had told him. On the third day, Abraham lifted up his eyes and saw the place from afar. Then Abraham said to his young men, Stay here with the donkey. I and the boy will go over there and worship and come again to you. A little side note, anytime you hear something about the third day in the Old Testament, it's probably a picture of Christ about to happen. Okay. Uh, and Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac his son. And he took in his hands the fire and the knife. So they went both of them together. And Isaac said to his father Abraham, My father. And he said, Here am I, my son. He said, Behold the fire and the wood. But where is the lamb for the burnt offering? Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. So they went both of them together. And God certainly did provide a lamb for the burnt offering, provided a ram for Abraham in place of his son Isaac, and he provided his son for us. Right? So, in our place, Jesus has come to die for us. Cool. So, that is our comparisons from the Old Testament pointing us to this coming of Christ. Now we're going to do a little more contrasting and compare Christ's first coming with his second coming. So for this, we need to flip back to Revelation. Um, so I'm going to go to Revelation 19 and read a little bit from there, starting in verse 11. Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. 
The one sitting on it is called faithful and true, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and his head, uh, and on his head are many diadems. Those are crowns. And he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. So when Christ comes again, it's not on a donkey this time, it's now on the war horse. He is coming to tread the wine press. What's the wine press? Well, actually, we get a picture of that wine press a few chapters earlier, and we're going to take a look at that. So, Revelation 14 14. Then I looked, and behold, a white cloud, and seated on the cloud, one like a son of man, with a uh, golden crown on his head and a sharp sickle in his hand. And another angel came out of the temple, calling with a loud voice to him who sat on the cloud Put in your sickle. And reap, for the hour to reap is come, for the harvest of the earth is fully ripe. So he who sat on the clouds swung his sickle across the earth, and the earth was reaped. That's the good news for us, right? Christ taking his church. And then in verse 17, Then another angel came out of the temple in heaven, and he too had a sharp sickle. And another angel came out from the altar, the angel who has authority over the fire. And he called with a loud voice to the one who had the sharp sickle, Put in your sickle and gather the clusters from the vine of the earth, for its grapes are ripe. So the angel swung the sickle across the earth and gathered the grape harvest of the earth and threw it into the great winepress of the wrath of God. And the winepress was trodden outside the city, and blood flowed from the winepress as high as the horse's bridle for 1600 stadia. Definitely not grapes. Uh, a little side note there, 1600 stadia. If you've ever driven to Tucson, it's about 184 miles. That's about 1600 stadia. That's a long ways away. Um, yeah, so when Christ comes again, the opportunity for mercy is over. We see from his first coming that he comes to bring mercy and salvation, and that is a free gift offered to us that we have access to now. And in his second coming, he brings war and judgment. Now, that seems kind of like a paradox to me. Two things that don't seem to mesh well together, and yet, on further investigation, they are true. This is the same Jesus who comes in mercy and love, bringing us hope of a future with him, and the same Jesus who comes riding on his white horse with a sharp two-edged sword. His first battle was against sin, death, and the devil. He has overcome death and given us that access to eternal life. And his second battle is going to bring the full restoration of all things. 
this wrath that comes at the end, that is the wrath that Christ satisfied with his death on the cross. He has taken our place. All those scary things that you read in Revelation, that's what Christ sacrificed. That is what he took on for himself when he carried our sins. He satisfied the wrath of God. And we now have access to God through Christ. In both, we see his arrival met with great fanfare. The angels proclaim his birth. The people sing his praises when he comes riding into Jerusalem. And finally, at the very end, a great trumpet blast declares his arrival as the true king. Are we ready for that? The choice is ours. Do we want to ask for his mercy? Ask for his salvation? Or do we say, no, we don't want that. We'll take the wrath instead. Christ has paid that price for us. And it doesn't have to be. Until then, let us live a full life in Christ and bring others along for the ride. Dear Lord, we thank you for this day. We thank you for your gift of grace that you come in mercy and you have satisfied the wrath of God for us. We praise you because you are worthy of praise. You deserve all honor and glory. We ask that you guide us each day that we may share with others uh, just what a wonderful gift you have for us. What a wonderful uh, life you have with you in store for those who wish it. Uh, For today, help us to give back to you what you have first given us in our tithes and offerings and our time, all the ways that we serve you. Lord, we look to you for all things. In Jesus' name, amen.